Welcome to the EMS Handout, your source for all things EMS. And now, let's welcome to the show your hosts, Bradley Dean, Eric McCullough, and David Blevins. Hello and welcome to the EMS Handoff Podcast. This is David, and along with my co-host, Eric McCullough and Bradley Dean, we are your source for all things EMS. Tonight we bring on a guest. We've actually been solo for the last couple of weeks, guys, and uh, this week we're bringing a guest on here, and I think we're going to have a great topic, but before we do, you know, we always like to check in. Brad or uh, Eric's always doing the adulting thing, so uh, what's the weather been like, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> oh it's good enough to have a bonfire finally oh wow yeah i mean not great i mean it was still a little warm but i was like dang i'm having one i'm not i'm because we're not gonna have a fall i've just decided that it, we're gonna get five days of fall and then it's gonna be followed swiftly by a kick in the teeth to winter we're not gonna get anything but summer mosquitoes and, and just cold weather because tennessee's become awful about weather <laughs> Wow, At least in my area, us, Middle Tennessee, just, not Knoxville. Just, just tell us how you really feel. Yeah, like, no, you know? it's, it's, it's so it's frustrating because I want I want to enjoy it. You know, I just want to enjoy it. I mean, you could go out to Arizona where they only have hot and cold. You know, it's really uh, Oof, no, no, no. So, all not right. All. So you're gonna keep your Middle Tennessee weather then, huh? Yeah, I try. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And so on the other side, we have the vanishing uh, Bradley Dean. You never know when he's gonna come up with a Houdini and uh rush out, but he's keeping the people of North Carolina safe tonight. Bradley Dean what's going on, my friend. Yeah. It, it's funny how you said Houdini <laughs> there. So, but anyway, so I'll try not to vanish, but um, man, it was, it's been a great day. The weather was wonderful here, but um, it's funny. We always talk about the weather, but I will tell you that fall colors are starting to come out. It really looks beautiful between here and the mountains. You know, one of these nights, we're going to just have to have somebody on from the National Weather Service just so we can do a whole episode, because that's what we always seem to talk about. You know, that's the adult thing. It's like, hey, guys, how's the weather in your area? This is great. Yeah, uh, right now, every, everybody who knows us at this point listens to us, like John Wood and a few others, because he was listening to it last night. I'm like, they're fast-forwarding the first probably five or ten minutes of this. They're just like, it's, it's sometimes skip, the best. It's like, oh, there they go. They're still okay, there they go. Weather. When are they oh, going to shut goodness. up about that and get on yeah. with stuff? All right, before we get started, we always like to thank our podcast partner, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. See, Eric, we'll go right on past that weather stuff, you know, <laughs> but the Journal of Med Emergency Medical Services has been a great partner to the EMS handoff since our reboot time. Make sure to go by and check them out at gyms.com. They have all the industry news that is news. Uh, plus, they have all of our episodes. You can go back, and I actually went back and tracked every single one of our last episodes. We rolled over that half-century mark here recently, uh, which has been pretty awesome. And uh, so we love all the support. We're almost at a year, guys. It's kind of hard to uh, believe that, but uh, we are. So you can check us out on gems.com and find out everything that's going on. Don't forget to go to the Pursuit Company and find all of the EMS handoff merchandise. Tonight, I've got the subdued black on. Uh, one that everybody likes. You can see that EMS handoff in the background. Uh, our Keep Back podcast line is one of the most uh, popular we have. You can go by and check all of those out at thepursuitco.com. That's enough uh, of that tonight. Before Houdini vanishes, go ahead and introduce us to our guest there, Bradley Dean. So tonight we have you know a great guest, and I'm sure that many people in EMS are familiar with uh, the stuff that he has done his writing uh tonight we've got uh, mike mcavoy who is the ems coordinator in uh, saratoga county new york uh he's a paramedic he's a nurse uh, he has a phd he's he's got all the the wonderful letters behind his name uh, he does a lot with the uh, resuscitation com uh, committee at albany medical center so i'm gonna turn it over to mike and i'll let you kind of fill in anything there Sounds good. I'm happy to be here. Good to see everybody. Um, yeah, you want uh, uh, you, you kind of nailed all my uh, occupations there. So I'm a paramedic, a nurse, an author. Uh, I do a lot of speaking. 
Um, so I kind of divide my time between pre-hospital and uh, hospital stuff. And then uh, hospital, I work as a nurse in a cardiac uh, surgical ICU, which uh, has two components, adults and kids. And uh, so I see a lot of the, uh, the ECMO and the, the fancy sort of stuff that uh, we read about all the time in, in our uh, EMS magazines and we're hoping comes out to the field someday. So um, that's sort of my, my background in a nutshell. Yeah, and I, I imagine people have seen me in the EMS world, the fire service world and in the, uh, the healthcare world as well, so. One of the things that I noticed is that whenever we bring a guest on here, we we'll go through the biography and I'm sitting here going like, how much time do they have in their day? Um, last time I checked, I have 86,400 seconds. And uh, for some reason, it seems like uh, I don't have time to do all the stuff I've got to do, let alone, you know, listening to all that that uh, you got going on, Chief. But uh, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, in respect of those 86,400 seconds, we're going to go ahead and rock and roll in this conversation. And I'm just going to go ahead and put you on the spot. Uh, as we reached out, I said, hey, what do you want to talk about? Uh, you said the very first thing, you have the date that the pandemic is going to end. I think that's exactly how that first part was first part was worded. So uh, everybody can hear it first. Gene McAvoy is getting ready to lay down the line when this pandemic is going to end. Well, I wish I I wish I could predict a future like that. Uh, and, and I guess that like I think most people by now have realized that uh, it's not going to abruptly stop. You know, uh, it's kind of funny because this is our third uh, novel coronavirus. Right. And SARS, uh, the, the second one just disappeared overnight. And I think a lot of people who knew about that were hoping this one would disappear overnight like that as well. And it kind of looks as though. Well, that's not outside the realm of possibility. It seems like uh, it's getting legs to continue itself for another couple of years, and maybe it'll be uh, become something that hangs around forever like the flu does. Well, uh, I, this is one that I have to admit defeat on because I was asked in, in January of 2020 if I thought that uh, this new SARS-CoV-2 was going to do anything here in the United States, and I said, if it, if it makes it here, you know, Cause I, you know, I was going on the trends of SARS-CoV-1 and I'm like, nah, you know, it's going to be here. It's going to go away. And, you know, chances are it's not never going to do anything. Uh, and, and then about uh, six weeks after that, um, our campus is closing for a second week of, of spring break. We don't bring anybody back for a month and a half, almost two months. And uh, after that, it you know, it's been a, it's been a big deal, but you know, with that, I think that question loads a whole lot of things. So at some point in time, you know, we go through kind of the emergent phase. And as you mentioned, it goes, you know, if it continues and, and what a lot of people think, and we kind of see this as something like the flu after that, it's something that we see throughout. So where do you kind of see based on, on your knowledge and your research, where do we see this going after the, the constant surge up and down? Well, I, I guess like it's sad in a way that uh, we, we continue to hold the record here in the United States for the number of infections and the number of deaths worldwide. And uh, I think there's other countries right now trying to sneak up on us with that, but no one's beat us in, in the last year. And uh, I think based on that, the fact that we can't uh, get the kind of vaccination that we need to wipe this thing out, that we're, we're kind of going to have to live with it in, in, our, in our country, at least uh, for, for a couple more years, I would say, until we get to a point where either enough people have been infected with it uh, and or vaccinated. And, you know, we, we've been successful in eradicating a few things over, over time, like uh, smallpox and measles. Um, and this probably falls right into that category where we got to reach that critical threshold and it's just not going to happen uh, based on, on what we're seeing in our society right now. So that I guess, too, you know, the United States is like a whole bunch of little countries because we have places where 
it's a big problem. We have places where it's a little problem and we have places where it's a moderate size problem. And that's directly related to behavior in, in those states and in those communities. And I think you're absolutely right. And the way you're uh, talking about it is the fact that, you know, there's there's been many things that have affected us here in the country across the globe. Uh, and some of them we just end up turning around and, and living with that throughout history, such as the flu, you know, there's been the the variations of Spanish flu, et cetera, back in 1800s. But um, when we when we take a look at uh, something like this, you know, it really does kind of shift how we do everything. And so let's talk about the EMS profession specifically and, you know, what changes, you know, we, we've been sitting here now for 20 months, 18, 19 months, right, right at 19, 20 months. We're in that range. Um, and we've seen a tremendous uh, shift in EMS. So, what are some of the changes that you've seen in EMS that have come about because of the pandemic? Well, the two big ones that jump out at me are, um, you know, I'm a nurse and a paramedic. And so I guess I should hate myself. Um, the, the relationship between nurses and paramedics has never been a great one um, socially or in their interactions. And I think like that has dramatically changed uh, because paramedics have been pulled into public health. And I know in my own county, the relationship um, between the two where paramedics have really gotten some insight into what nurses do and working with nurses and immunization and testing clinics. And nurses have looked at what paramedics do and gained like a whole lot of respect for them um, as a profession. So that's one thing that I think is big, you know, for us as uh, EMS people. And I think the other one, which if you think back to Ebola, um, I, I, I had such a problem when we were dealing with Ebola here. Uh, and not that we had a lot of cases, but New York was an entry portal. And uh, so Ebola was a big thing. And we had to figure out a way to handle patients with suspected Ebola. And no one wanted to have anything to do with that. They, we had to form a team uh, of the few interested people in the county who were willing to uh, put on all the gear and go out pick up an Ebola patient. And you know, out of seventeen hundred some providers, I had a little group of thirty that that were willing to do that. And now we flash forward to today, and we have learned so much about PPE and infection control that. Uh, most EMS people would be like, you could name any problem that you might encounter, including Ebola. And EMS people would be like, yep, I know what to do. So our whole education on PPE and infection control has just like overnight become uh, something that we feared to something that we can handle now. And I think that's impressive. I mean, we, 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 we probably even can recognize things that we shouldn't be buying because they're a waste of money. <laughs> I give people credit for learning about that. Well, you know, and they, they did it. You know, one of the things about the EMS profession is we're extremely resilient. You know, you place us in a situation, we're going to learn and we're going to adapt and we're going to do what we have to do because, uh, you know, in the end, you know, we're out there to help the, the community and, you know, that, that means we have to be prepared. We have to be ready to use that equipment. And, and I have seen that, you know, um, in a, in a setting, just had another fit test for an N95 and everybody's like, you know, these, these masks, we should just get rid of these and go to the other ones. And, uh, you know, because like you said, they're starting to identify, but, uh, I, yeah, I want to go back to the number one uh, point that you said under that. And it's kind of the, uh, the, the, the change between, or, or the, the shift, I guess, in the mentality between EMS and nursing, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we've gotten extremely close and it's, it's quite interesting. I had multiple conversations that there's a lot that just have really said, we never understood just how much that you, you all could do. And one of the things we're seeing in our area, that's actually changing that, even more is the fact that multiple hospitals are actually hiring in uh, EMS providers into their emergency department 
to uh, fast track some of the cases that they have come through because of kind of their autonomous nature. You know, they're still working with that physician or under that physician, but they're using utilizing those skills and processing while the nursing uh, staff are, are in another area. So they're actually getting a little bit closer uh, relationship. So, you know, a lot of when we when we take a look at how our federal system acts, you know, we all sit under ESF eight for uh, um, healthcare, um, and this is kind of one of those areas that's been tested. And for the most part, you know, we've seen a influx of those federal COVID dollars that have come in and kind of hit as well. And so, some of the things that I've seen, and I'm just going to kind of push your direction as well, looking at the the field services that you deal with. We've seen a lot of COVID funds come in for inclusion of uh, UV lights in the back of the ambulances or disinfectant sprayers and stuff like that. But I think there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, have we properly been disinfecting our units between each patient anyways? And so, uh, you know, when it comes to operations, like what are some of the things that you've seen change during this time as well? Well, I guess, um, you know, I think there's a few things that that I see that are big issues. One is um, we've never really uh, in the past had a need to um, get reliable information from our dispatchers. <laughs> and uh, we've been willing to like, OK, let me see. It says a cardiac, so it could be anything from a asthma call to a stabbing. So I'll just go. Um, we've demanded that now in the last year and a half, we want questions asked and we want to know when we're walking into something that's potentially an infectious problem. And we found all kinds of creative solutions. As you said, EMS is very creative. And so are our 911 centers. So we found all kinds of ways to operationally be better informed about what we're rolling into. Um, that's an interesting thing you bring up about the disinfection because we I'm uh, taking part in a, a national study that's uh, the expert groups meets tomorrow for the first time to talk about um, how we decontaminate things in the pre-hospital environment and whether the techniques and strategies that we're using are um, number one consistent and number two actually evidence-based you know so that they affect the outcomes of the people that we're transporting. And um, this is like a huge conundrum in the hospital as well, because hospitals had no idea what to do to clean a room after a COVID patient left. <laughs> and so they, they used all the, you know, the hydrogen peroxide, the UV lights and, you know, burning everything in the room. The, the strategies were um, from extreme on one end to none on the other end. And, and I guess, you know, one of the tenets of infection control is just because you have contamination on a surface doesn't mean that you have infection necessarily, right? I mean, you could have bubonic plague all over the back of the ambulance and might not get anybody sick in the process unless they're licking it. Um, so <laughs> so we don't, we're not going to leave that out of the realm of possible either. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I mean, I think that's um, that's that's been an interesting uh, change in in how we operate is is uh, the preparedness uh, and the information that that we're getting. I think the other thing that I see um, amongst EMS people is um, the the people uh, working together have become closer to each other. Like I see a little bit more community support inside our organizations, and um, and that's been interesting in a way because. You, you, this is a it's been very, very stressful year and a half. And, uh, you know, you could see the fallout that's happening across the healthcare spectrum where, you know, nursing homes lost a huge number of their staff and hospitals have lost tons and tons of staff. Um, EMS seems like it, it hasn't, um, it hasn't been affected as seriously from the perspective of morale in the services as has happened elsewhere in healthcare. And I wonder if that's because 
the skills that we have uh, along the lines of resilience, which you mentioned earlier, are stronger in in our in our line of work. I don't I don't know the answer to that. You know, I, I said very early on in the pandemic, one of the things I talked to our public health people about was we have like two different um, responsibilities, two different levels of responsibility. If you go back to the HIV era, um, a nurse or a doctor can refuse to take care of a patient who has some condition or has some sort of situation where they don't feel like they either want to take care of that patient or it's safe to take care of that patient. Um, so everything that they do in, and everything that they did in the HIV um, era was premised on whether or not they were willing to take care of those patients. And the same thing's true during COVID. They, they can refuse an assignment that they don't think is a, a safe sort of situation. We don't have that luxury in a fire service. We don't have that luxury in law enforcement. We don't have that luxury in EMS. So we're assigned to a call and we go to that call or we go home. <laughs> and, it, and if you think about that, imagine the, the downstream psychological effects that that has on those two different workforces, right? And I think because we're required to do whatever comes along, maybe our resiliency has been stronger during this pandemic than it has elsewhere in the system. I, I don't know the answer to that. That's a casual observation. Well, and that, that kind of goes into our next area anyways. And, and I, I want to revert just a little bit. We are talking about licking, uh, licking stuff uh, in the field. It, it, one of the uh, most telling questions when they started to put all this stuff out here, we're using the sprayers, we're using the, uh, UV lights. And I said, so uh, how are you getting everything on the inside of your first end bag? Well, it's sitting back there. I'm like, yeah, it, it is. Would you open that up? You're talking about it being on everything. And they're like, I, I don't know. And so it, it's been, uh, it, it's no secret that, uh, you know, one of the conversations that we've seen and actually seen it for a few years is, the amount of uh, nursing staff that is out there, the really, uh, when we take a look, it's, it's nursing, it's uh, even physicians have had shortages over the last several years. And so in the hospital, we've seen those numbers kind of affect. Um, what have we seen about that kind of staffing level issue in healthcare uh, bleeding over into the EMS side as well? Well, it's definitely there. And, you know, it's, uh, I wouldn't. I would be wrong not to say that we have a crisis in our uh, EMS world in the workforce. I mean, we we can't. We don't have enough paramedics. We don't have enough EMTs to provide the fill the openings that are out there. And uh, that's what we were talking about this offline earlier. Is you know what are the sources of that? And it seems like New York State did a study on it in their state. And it really fell down to two things. One was the culture in the workplace and people leave because of their workplace and not because of the calls that they're running. It's because of their management, their leadership. And uh, so that that's, you know, probably half of the problem. And the other half of the problem is, you know, what are, what are people paid and how are they uh, compensated and what do they need to do to make a living? And, you know, somebody, as we talked about earlier, if a hospital is going to pay a paramedic $10 more an hour, well, then it'd be kind of foolish not to go work somewhere where they can make some more money. Uh, I think the state of Texas did a survey of, they took all their licensed providers in the state and they ran it against their PCR database to see how many of the people actually saw a patient in the last year. And it it was stunning. It's probably about a third of them actually saw a patient. So where are the other two thirds working? And the answer is not in 911, I guess. So I always thought that was interesting that um, I would tell, I, I would ask students, you know, I, I saw them on the entry level, obviously when they're coming into EMT and AMT school. And I was like, you might've gotten in here for passion, but you stay cause it's a business. It becomes a business. It becomes transactionary. Um, because you don't see nurses and doctors and stuff. Um, they don't, and PAs and MPs there, this is very much a business transaction. 
Um, what they do at a clinic, um, they will go from a hospital to a clinic on the side based on their compensation rates. That's the that's the, one of the top things they talk, they think about. It's, it, it's bizarre kind of working with physicians because the way that they talk and the way that the nurses talk is way different than the way paramedics talk. Like we talk about shift, call volumes and stuff. And money becomes something way down in our priority list whenever we're discussing, but it's actually the top priority when we go home. Because depending on how how far down you are on your own monetary level, you may not get to come home that often. And it may start to weigh heavy on you. I, I keep saying that like, if I had to go back into a program again, I'd Dave Ramsey them for an entire day, just so that they like, guys don't make bad money decisions because your, your passion will become more money a lot sooner than it, than it would naturally. And so do you think that that's evolved even more like now, because now you got nurses with higher travel pays and you got paramedics are like these hospitals are willing to see these paramedics and they're just willing to suckle them into the ER and pay them. Like you said, more, more money they'll make them on the ambulance. Yeah. I mean, I, that's definitely drawing people away from, um, the workforce in the street, you know, so, but, you know, I think I, I would say that it's, it, it's, if I take my own area where I live here, um, the service that I work for and at home, um, is a busy service. So it's, it runs, you know, 7,000 calls a year. Well, I call that busy. Um, I come from New York City, so that wouldn't be busy there. But um, so here, it's it's busier. It's probably the busiest service um, in the area, and people have a choice of coming to work in the place where I work or uh, working at uh, any one of a number of places around here for roughly the same amount of money. So you take your choice as to do you want to sit and watch TV. You want to run calls most of your shift. And it's funny because for the same amount of pay, there's less problem hiring people, less openings uh, needing to be filled in a place like mine where people really enjoy the work that they do and they really enjoy each other. And um, yet they could go somewhere else where it's easier for them. Yet they choose to go somewhere where the environment is an environment that they like. And I think that that's, I don't know that we really have seen the tip of the iceberg with that yet nationally, because, you know, there, there are, I, I think if you looked at every single service and you figured out a way to quantify what that workplace environment is like, um, you'd, you'd probably find that, um, that may, plays a major factor in in being able to recruit and retain. Retain, I think, is the the key because that that was what we were talking about with the the National Registry data that I, I threw out publicly a few weeks ago. Is that data shows two two big things. One, we're not producing even half of the number of EMTs and paramedics that we need each year. And number two, it's not that they're failing out of school; it's that they're filling out of work once they once they graduate and they go to work somewhere we're losing them and and we're losing them because of what i don't know when you ask them they seem to say leading the list of reasons they leave is their management so it's not their work well it's, it's quite interesting and, and you may have read uh read it as well chief but uh dissertation was done down in georgia uh, and i believe the individual is now the um, state EMS director, uh, but the Georgia Trauma Foundation actually sponsored his dissertation and he actually did a study, uh, the Georgia EMS workforce study is what it was called. And the uh, individual uh, uh, did basically did exit interviews with anybody that was leaving the profession or was just simply transferring service. And and he kind of spoke about several of the, the main points or, or really kind of listed out the main points and money well, for the most was in the third place spot. Uh, and so we we kind of take a look. And so one of the the LinkedIn groups that I follow is one called Leadership First. And there's a, a, a Gifford Thomas uh, wrote a book by the same title as well. And it's really uh, interesting. And you take a look and a lot of it is is put back on that leadership. It, does that leadership allow a toxic environment? Does that leadership 
show favoritism? Does that leadership show that the person is valuable? Um, and I think, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things that we got to a point there uh, between 2001 and 2011, between the individuals that were coming into the profession after the September 11th tax, uh, and then subsequently right after that, the economic recession, that everybody wanted to come to the profession, and we had tons and tons of people. And now we're having to compete, uh, compete with the likes of, one, different services out there that are going, hey, we'll pay We've got bonuses. We've got moving travel uh, allotments, and and uh, you know, you come down to our service or come to our service. We'll you know we'll absolutely bring you in, pay you. Uh, but then we also have other places like uh, you know, uh, shoot, Hobby Lobby in the area is competing dollar for dollar with the paramedics. And you know, one of the things is you go into your eight hours and you're done for the day, uh, and you don't have to worry about you know the the. Uh, tragic call that you're going to run and, or the, you know, the, the fears of, you know, not being able to go to work for the next 10 days, if you happen to test positive for COVID and such. So I think the data that you uh, put out was tremendous. And uh, we're going to, we're going to shift there for just a second since you went ahead and brought it up. Um, you know, we take a look and uh, one of the things that you addressed, one was uh, obviously you hit all three levels, EMT advanced, EMT and paramedic. Um, and, uh, you know, got into the numbers as far as people completing programs, testing. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, kind of the, the retention side of things. And I like how you put it, they're failing out of work. Um, and you, you put a specific quote in there that they were leaving the profession 11 times. The paramedic level was leaving the field 11 times greater than that of those individuals that weren't able to pass the written examination. So, where if we can, so now we got to kind of back up and leave New York, leave Knoxville, leave Murfreesboro or Rowan County, and and look at EMS globally. And you know where where do we need to? I I, I really guess put our efforts. You know, we talked about leadership, but where where does that leader, especially new leaders, start to say, hey, I, I want to create. I want to create the destination job. And I think that's, let me, let me quantify that one more time. Uh, you know, whenever we do our paramedic interviews, one of the questions is what is your long-term goals? And it always seems to be, well, I want to go to paramedics so I can get to nursing. I can go to PA. I can become a physician. I can go on the fire side. And then you have the occasional that says, I want to stay in EMS and, you know, become a supervisor, become a director, et cetera. So if you were bringing on or mentoring your next generation, how do you tell that individual say, Hey, this is what you need to do to make EMS and specifically your agency, a destination job. Some, some place is going to keep them for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, and, and, you know, while you while we could blame management and leadership, we can also say that, you know, if I compare EMS to the fire service, fire service has a very, uh, while we don't always agree on it, we have a culture where um, company officers, you know, those people that are in between the chiefs and the, the guy, the boots on the ground, the company officers have a very um, deliberate process by which they um, acquire the skills that they need to, to uh, lead a team of people. And you find in, in fire departments that when there's a good company officer, there's a good company, you know, that's a good station. And uh, so I would say one of our one of our big issues, you know, if I was going to try to create the perfect world in EMS is I would focus a little bit more on, on standardizing that sort of uh, leadership skill set. you know, that middle management, the supervisor. Um, we don't even have a term for that, that person in EMS like we do in the fire service. Um, and, and I think that's a, you know, that, that's always been a, been a weakness for us is, uh, trying to train that that middle person, and even hospitals have um, preceptor training and uh, 
charge nurse, tra charge nurse training, so to say, um, which helps them, you know, gives them the skill set that they need to create a good working culture in that place where the people are delivering care on the street. And uh, I would say that's uh, probably the first thing I would would think about. I guess the second thing is um, how much training gets done. And again, a good, really good uh, firehouse does a whole lot of training. And I noticed that a really good ambulance service does a whole lot of training and people are passionate about training and passionate about um, what they can learn when, when they have downtime. And um, we have a lot more downtime in the EMS, believe it or not, than other sectors of healthcare. And if we use that, we invest money in, in what we're doing to improve the technology and have simulation and that sort of stuff, and then have people trained to use it and, and take advantage of it. That seems to also be a factor that retains people. They feel as though what they do is valued by their employer and they want to invest in them doing it better. So uh, those are probably two things that I could think of right off the bat that I would well, say I, are important. I'm going to, I'm going to tie this. So uh, one of your, uh, one of the few hats that you do where you sit as the EMS uh, section chair of the international association of fire chiefs. And I believe it or not, have this little document sitting on my desk right now that you probably can tell exactly what this picture is. Uh, and I take a look, you know, it's IF, IFC's officer development handbook. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you take a look. Um, if you were a service chief or a service training officer, a, a, anything in leadership with a service, you know, the question is, is I come up to you and I say, Hey, you know, I've, I've been an EMT and AMT or a paramedic for X number of years, you know, what should I be doing? And, you know, the, the idea really kind of comes to mind, well, you know, keep up your licensure every two years and, you know, go out and do whatever. And you know, I, I kind of like the, the quote that's right above that chart right there. Professional development is the planned progressive life long process of education. And, you know, it's one of those things that probably most of us on here have experienced. It's like, well, why are you going to paramedic school? You know, you're not going to use that. And, you know, I came up through the fireside and like, you know, they're just going to use you. They're not going to give you any money and you're going to go to the worst stations, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and, and it's like, well, you know, I'm going to grow. I'm there to help, et cetera. It's like, well, why are you going to get your bachelor's degree? You're never going to use that in the fire department. It's like you don't need a you don't need a bachelor's degree to put wet stuff on the red stuff. But, you know, it, it was that desire. Of course, obviously, when I hit my master's, they're like, are you stupid? You know, I was like, no, actually, you know, thinking kind of smart. That's why I'm going to get the next level. And but it's kind of like, you know, where is that with EMS? And, you know, you have that two year, that three year uh, paramedic that's looking to do more. Mm. Where do we kind of guide them, you know, in, in this, it's saying, Hey, at, at this level, you should bump up to this, you know, look for this certification or go for this degree requirement or, you know, et cetera. And, and so I think that may be one of those beneficials and, and it goes back to that workforce study, that kind of knowledge or, or investment into developing a plan like that will tell your people that, Hey, I value you. And, want to keep you here. So we shift this conversation back. We took that rabbit hole down the trail. We're going to, we've got a couple more questions here about the COVID pandemic and um, really kind of uh, where things lie. So the question kind of put out there, what mistakes have been made at the, at, at each level and where are they as far as can we pull them back and change and, be on a better trajectory as a group? Well, the three big mistakes that pissed me off the most <laughs> were uh, the first is that uh, even today, the CDC continues to insist that fever is a symptom of COVID that we could use to identify it. And so we're taking temperatures, walking into buildings, completely and totally needlessly when the evidence would seem to suggest that 
fever is probably the last symptom that you could use reliably to uh, diagnose COVID. Um, so I'll, I'll skip on to my next one. The second one is uh, we were told in the beginning by the CDC, and they've since changed their mind. This past summer, the CDC admitted in uh, June that um, surface cleaning um, is unimportant in the spread of COVID, that really hand washing is the important thing. And yet, and here's how they realized that. Um, in May of uh, this year, the poison control people reported to CDC that um, there have been a 700 times increase in poisonings from cleaning products that people have been using to disinfect their work surfaces, their doorknobs and everything under the sun. Um, around there and it, it didn't seem like it was getting rid of COVID. So maybe it was a little overkill on the surface cleaning. So that, that's the second one. That, and unfortunately that's kind of changed, but in the mind of the public, maybe not so much because I still see people wiping off their chair when they get in the airplane. Um, then, then the third one, which I, I think no one wants to take responsibility for this, but in the beginning of the pandemic, Despite evidence to the contrary, the CDC insisted that we were spreading COVID by droplets. And so six feet distancing was what we needed for social distancing. It was people sneezing these droplets and that was what was spreading COVID around. It completely um, debunked any idea that it was an aerosolized uh, virus. And then now the evidence is overwhelming that it's aerosolized and that it stays in suspended particles stay in a room for an hour, two hours, three hours. And people walk into that room and inhale suspended particles of aerosol. And um, that, and it's funny because I talked to dentists groups a fair amount because a training company that I'm involved in does a lot of ACLS and PALS training for uh, dental practices. And so I talked to dentists a lot. And very early on in the pandemic, they seemed to get this idea that if they had a choice of things to do in a patient care area, and you want to talk about aerosols, there's dentists, <laughs> right? Um, so they, they got the idea very early on that if they put a, um, a uh, machine into their room that filtered the air, that they were going to have a much better effect on keeping their employees safe than anything else that they could do. And maybe they combine UV with that um, HEPA filter or that aerosolization filter. But that that um, is interesting because they understood the problem. And I think they understood that we're not talking about big droplets, we're talking about aerosolized things. And you think back to um, measles, you know, measles is so infectious, not anywhere near as infectious or, or excuse me, so, so much more infectious than COVID is that somebody with measles walks into a room and for three hours after that person leaves, any unvaccinated person that comes into the room is going to get measles 90% of the time. So now, now we see, okay, that's how COVID is spread. And boy, that, you know, if that information was pushed out when the data started to point to it, we probably wouldn't have been in the situation that we were for so many months, you know, last year. And so uh, it's actually kind of interesting. One of the podcasts that I listened to on this actually from uh, up in your direction is a podcast called the Osterholm update. Uh, a guy named uh, Michael Osterholm, who's director of the center for infectious disease research and policy at the university of Minnesota. And, uh, deep into uh, the pandemic, he started publishing a weekly podcast and his, his role as a uh, infectious disease doc uh, um, had a lot of these conversations. And, and I, I love uh, the conversation you're having because it's very similar to him. He's like, you know, as a, as a scientist, I should uh, shouldn't say this because I represent a strong uh, Center for Disease Control is like, these dudes got it wrong on this. And, you know, some of them have been things like that. Uh, you know, the, the the masking policy with just any type masks that are out there. He goes, you know, the plexiglass uh, 
dividers and he's like you know let me let me do this he said let me light up a cigarette on my side of the plexiglass and see if you smell it or not and goes you know if you if you can then you know it's possible you get covid if you can't uh you can't and so let's you know let's let's take a look and so i I think those are all value valuable points and you know it's it's one of those things i think where it, you know, you're out there and providing such a strong, you know, you, you're concerned that you're going to have, again, these 50 million deaths, uh, you know, again, going back to the Spanish flu, you know, the numbers are unsure, but, you know, one going up to 50 million. Nobody wants a disease like that to be on their watch. And so you come out with kind of a hard line, say, this is what you need. And then when evidence doesn't direct you, or when evidence does direct you, you don't shift because that seems to be a, a, an alteration. But, you know, when, especially in our profession, we know that, you know, with evidence-based medicine, if we've been doing something and it's proved that it doesn't work and we need to do something else, we now shift. And so some of those will kind of be interesting. But I, I will tell you, you know, uh, we, we've talked about it on here that, uh, you know, when I did have my case of COVID, you know, mine, I just got tired. Uh, had a real short-term fever. It went away within like uh, four hours. And so, uh, you know, everybody's going to adapt just a little bit different. So, you know, the key thing I think is, you know, while the CDC does everything they can, you know, take as much data that you have and uh, work with your partners. This is one where, you know, we have a, believe it or not, you know, it seems like every physician that's out there is a researcher to some level. And, you know, that's one of the things I think we miss commonly in this profession is an opportunity to say, hey, you know, this is what I researched, you know, let's let's take a look and add it up to a couple, go to our physician medical director and see if we change things a little bit. So one of the last topics I want to get to on here is uh, what are you seeing as far as therapeutics? Uh, a lot of things are out there. Uh, you know, uh, we, we see the uh, monoclonal antibodies. We see. Uh, different treatments, you know, what new treatments are out there? And what do you, what are you seeing as way for EMS to participate in that as well? Uh, it's interesting that we're even involved in, in some of that stuff right now. I mean, we've kind of, it's, it, it, COVID was a perfect segue for EMS to use some of our skills in, in areas where uh, people weren't aware that we could do those things like People didn't know that we could give a shot, <laughs> which is odd, but yeah, that's it. So, um, you know, we're, we've done, we've focused a lot on vaccines um, over the last year and a half, but in reality, in the pipeline for FDA, uh, if you look at what's in development, there are um, probably eight categories of things where there are literally um, several thousand um therapies in development. And some, some of those are uh, along the lines of antibodies, uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, antivirals. Uh, Merck is uh, probably the next one that's going to come out with something that is actually a pill that uh, works very similar to the infusions of the monoclonal antibodies that we're using, which would be great because um, having to take a pill is a lot easier to swallow for some people literally than uh, getting an infusion of something. Um, but it runs the gamut of uh, things from uh, getting somebody who has the high risk patient who is diagnosed with COVID and uh, is at a high risk of going on to become seriously ill to you and I, um, healthy people that you know, if we're exposed to COVID, is there something we could take um, that would head off the uh, effects of that from being able to replicate in our bodies and all the way down to these critically ill patients that we're putting on ECMO, you know, because they're at the end stage of their illness from COVID, you know, what could we do across that whole spectrum? And there are targeted uh, treatments in every possible manner that you can think of that deal with the immune system and infectious diseases, um, aside from vaccines. I mean, I think vaccines are like a tiny little portion of what's out there in development now. And it's fascinating because that's going to help us in other, in other fields too. You know, I think one of the things that people aren't even aware of is the MRNA viruses or MRNA vaccines, sorry. Um, 
the uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines, that mRNA technology was designed so to treat cancer. Actually, it was being used as a way of delivering um, therapeutics that were anti-cancer agents, and it has the capability to put eight or nine different things into one vaccine. So we could make an mRNA vaccine that covers the flu, that covers COVID, that covers measles, that covers mumps and covers, uh, I don't know, whatever else you, you want to in one single vaccine. And that was the concept behind that when it was in development. And we, we've yet to even start to exploit that, but that's part of what's in the pipeline for the future. It's it's one of those that they can attach kind of those chemical messengers and get directly where they where they needed to go. So really kind of interesting. So Chief, we've we've uh, we've spent a tremendous amount of time talking tonight, and I've really kind of guided the conversation. So as we wrap up tonight, we always like to give an opportunity to just kind of give any parting thoughts that you might have uh, out there. So any last um, thoughts for you today? Well, I got a lot of thoughts all the time, but. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what I would say, um, you know, let me circle back to talk about one thing that that concerns me a little bit um, in the fire service. And I think that it might be uh, applicable to what we see in the EMS uh, world, the third service EMS world and commercial EMS world. We're in a, an amazingly good spot right now in the fire service because we have literally hundreds of chiefs that are running fire departments who came up through the ranks of EMS. And so now for the first time, I can actually say, uh, when I talk about EMS things in a group of fire chiefs that at least half of them get it. <laughs> and um, that has, at the, in addition to putting us in a better place on the fire side of the house, because chiefs understand they came up through the EMS world. They understand that that's 80% of what the fire service does. Uh, and they have a skill set that, that centers around that and they're good leaders or they wouldn't have become the chiefs of the departments. Um, they've left a vacuum in the middle. <laughs> and so we're suffering right now in the fire service from those individuals who are really strong leaders who had a skill set um, that developed on the EMS side of the fire service house um, to move up to become the chiefs and people aren't moving into those positions. So we don't have like a lot of bright minds in EMS in the fire service in the mid-level positions in, in the uh, company officer positions and uh, the uh, district chiefs and battalion chiefs. And that's a that concerns me. Uh, I'm just starting to become aware of that problem as I look for people to help with some committees on IAFC, and um, the IAFF is having kind of some similar problems on their side. But I wonder if that um, problem is not also present on the EMS side of the house when you look at commercial services, hospital-based services, and uh, municipal services, third services is. The, the really smart people are the leaders now, and uh, they're doing a great job, and they've spent many years coming up through the ranks, but who's coming into their places in the middle? And um, I, I'm concerned about that, and I think that's something that all of us kind of need to think about a little bit is, uh, and we, we talked a little bit about it earlier, is how do we develop leaders in, in the EMS services? And I, I, I'm very concerned about that. I think that that's something that um, we sort of missed over the last few years. And uh, we've been happy about the folks from our ranks that have moved up, um, but we haven't really filled their their positions. So that's something that, that definitely concerns me. And I think we gotta probably spend a little bit of time looking at that. But the other thing I, I would say, you know, just my two cents about the last year and a half and the hell that we've gone through is um, I'm really impressed with uh, what has happened to the image of EMS in the United States and across the world and the things that people have done, the, the um, flexibility and the thinking outside the box that EMS people have done. It is just remarkable, remarkable to me. And, and I think there's a lot of good things uh, that are gonna come from this downstream. 
And so that that's um that's the thing that impresses me the most about the last year and a half, as bad as it's been for all of us. Well, Chief, I certainly thank you. Uh, and I think I think you're absolutely right that you know we should be taking a look and taking the opportunity to say, you know, our people either need to push us to do better or for us to get up and get out of their way and give them the resources and uh, give them an opportunity, which is, you know, it's kind of interesting. That's one of the reasons why we took on the title we have, you know, we're the old guys anymore and trying to hand off that knowledge to the next generation is like, you know, learning how, and, you know, so if you're listening to this and you're not, uh, and you're not quite sure where to, push your service like, Hey, go over and, and pull down that, uh, IFC officer development plan, move that and de uh, design and implement or not implement, but propose a, uh, EMS officer development plan <coughs> and take it the direction that you want to go and, you know, make the service say exactly what you want, but as, as leaders and mentors, you know, guide and, and help those individuals out. So I'm going to toss it over to Bradley. Bradley's been quiet in the background. He did not Houdini us and, or I guess ghost us, uh, which is more like it. He's just been sitting in the background. So we'll give you the, the chance to talk on here for just a minute and give us your last thoughts today. So I've got a, <clears throat> got a couple. Uh, one of them is probably going to be uh, something for the future that you just mentioned, the vacuum in the middle. But um one of the big things is, is I will say this whole thing with the pandemic has caused a lot of stress, a lot of worry. You know, one of the big things is, is, you know, create our daily routine and make sure you get plenty of rest uh, for, for those of you that can. Um, and then going back to the, the whole thing that he said there with the, the vacuum in the middle, that might be something we want to do for a future podcast, because I, I was just sitting here looking, I pulled up uh, some, some, various staffing things from a couple of agencies. And it looks like most of the people that are at the uh, supervisor level and up have about 18 to 18 years and up. Uh, and then those that are assistants, um, roughly seven or eight years. And then everybody else in the agency is five or less, uh, five or less years. Uh, so it, there is, there is a huge vacuum in the middle. So good point. That, that, may, that may be episode two with Chief McAvoy. You never know. We'll we'll develop that. And uh, so great points there, uh, Bradley. How about you, Eric? Um, he mentioned my biggest pet peeve, too, for COVID, which was the, fe the fever. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. Uh, I work at a pediatric clinic on the side, and I can't tell how many positives we get back, and they don't have fever. In fact, I'm starting to think it's more GI-related symptoms and sinus infection symptoms before it's ever fever. So while we are routinely um, trying to diagnose COVID based off of that alone, heck, physicians are like, oh, you can't smell? Oh, sweet, we're not testing you. You got COVID. Stay home. <laughs> I, I, w I went hey, into hey. a clinic. Uh, I, I went into a clinic uh, uh, to get a test, uh, not, not for COVID. Um, and uh, they uh, took my temperature and they weren't going to let me leave without significant treatment. She showed up was 103.9. And uh, I'm like, let me just tell you, uh, I feel like uh, absolute crap when I go above 101 and I'm feeling like a champ right now. So uh, you're going to have to come up with something else. And finally, they found they found an oral thermometer for, uh, finally uh, and come back. And it was 98.7. And I was like, yeah, see, you know, you got to. Just if I'm going one up three nine, take your gloved hand and put it on the back of my or on my forehead. You don't realize that that's certainly not the case. Uh, that's that's hilarious. I, I completely and totally agree. So, um, Chief, again, we appreciate you coming on tonight. It's been a great episode. I think a, a lot of individuals are going to get a lot uh, from this. So I uh, look forward to getting everybody's feedback. And but, uh, sir, thank you for coming on. And uh, to all of our listeners, we always like to end by saying, hey, we want your feedback. And that's how we know exactly what you're looking for. So make sure to go by our website at emshandoff.com uh, and give us a shout out there. Uh, just to give everybody a heads up as this is coming out, we're actually switching our Facebook from a group to a page. 
Uh, and there's a lot of background work going behind that just to give you all a little bit more flexibility and kind of see us. We're going to have a lot more news coming out about that here in the near future. But uh, don't forget to keep hop on over to our Facebook page as well. Uh, Facebook has been one of our most active areas, and we want to make sure that it's functional for you. We're going to keep both of them active for a while until we get everybody switched over. Uh, so it's not like we're dropping off our group right away. So make sure to go by and check us out. And if you haven't as well, go by uh, our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button so you get this every Wednesday at noon. And lastly, we like to make sure that you uh, also like the EMS handout or EMS Today podcast by Jim's who broadcasts this, uh, our audio every week. You can find them on Apple, Google, and Spotify. And don't forget to go by the Pursuit Company and get our gear just because it's a cool thing. We want to see your pictures out and about. Uh, so make sure to give that a shout out. So from my co-host, Eric McCullough and Bradley Dean, on behalf of our guest as well, Chief McAvoy, this is David. Take care, stay safe, and always remember the value of your EMS handoff. <laughs>